The Titanium PowerBook got Apple rolling with silver laptops in 2001, and over the next few years, Apple kept improving on the concept with a series of aluminum notebooks. But for the Apple laptop to take its next big leap, Steve Jobs and company were going to need to do what they did with the original iMac and throw away a lot of features that the computer industry thought were must-haves. Traditional spinning hard drives and optical drives had to go. Ports would be eliminated, all in the service of the ultimate form of a laptop, one that was as thin and light as possible. After a failed first attempt, Apple finally got to the promised land. They made what I would argue is the definitive Mac of the 2010s. When it was introduced, Steve Jobs declared it the future of notebooks. But declaring a new Apple product the future was a thing Steve Jobs did a lot. This time, though, it altered the trajectory of the computer industry and became Apple's best-selling Mac. It was so successful that Apple couldn't kill it, and it tried. It's 20 Macs for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number four, the MacBook Air. In early 2008, Apple decided to change the world by introducing the MacBook Air. It was a three-pound laptop in a world of five- and six-pound laptops. Steve Jobs introduced it in an amazing bit of stagecraft by pulling it out of a manila envelope. It was that thin and small. Stephen Levy of Newsweek accidentally threw his away with his copy of the Sunday New York Times. But that computer was more expensive than a MacBook Pro, and yet also the slowest Mac Apple sold. It had a slow iPod-class spinning hard drive, although you could optionally configure it to use the Mac's first built-in solid-state drive, a massive 64-gigabyte model that cost you an extra $1,000. The MacBook Air didn't have an optical drive or a FireWire port or an Ethernet jack, had just a single USB port hidden behind an awkward drop-down port door, and its cooling system was so bad that it would stop working effectively in a warm room. Here's John Syracuse. It's a bad machine, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so the original MacBook Air was a little bit of a concept car. In the future, laptops could be like this, but this particular laptop isn't that great, right? And it didn't take that long for the technology to catch up to make more or less that same design finally work. Like all the flaws with the original MacBook Air had to do with what was inside the computer. None of them had to do with the idea that we should take a solid piece of aluminum, carve it out into a wedge shape and shove laptop parts in it. That was a killer idea. It's just that the parts that they could do that with, with the MacBook Air that fit into the envelope, those parts sucked. The hard drive was slow. The CPU was slow. It got too hot. The insides weren't ready for the outside. This is Shelley Brisbane. I remember picking it up at Macworld Expo when they announced it and thinking, okay, this is one we absolutely should wait for the second generation of because there were so many things about it that were clearly like proof of concept and not something I was going to spend my money on. But Apple was putting a signpost out that said, this is a direction that we want to go, lightness and thinness, but to a purpose. Like it didn't feel like they were just doing it gratuitously. Here's Christina Warren. 
That first MacBook Air was bad, but it was the right kind of idea. It was thin. First, it didn't have the right kind of hard drive, and it didn't have the right connectivity, and it was slow, and it just, okay, cool, you can pull it out of an envelope and and can accidentally throw it away with the newspaper, and that's really funny, but it wasn't something that you could use. This is James Thompson. People talk about the thinness of the air, but not as much about how light it was. People forget that laptops used to be really heavy. I was suffering from really bad RSI pain in my wrist and I had picked up my plastic MacBook in a weird way and did myself a serious injury. And I actually got the air because it weighed a kilogram less than that machine. And that genuinely helped. Every day, I commuted with a laptop in my backpack. Shaving two pounds off that backpack was so worth it. So I committed to the original MacBook Air, as my old boss, Rick LePage, reminded me. I remember you worked hard to make that very first generation Air work, but it was not easy. Yeah, so I worked in an office with a large west-facing window and not the best circulation. And in the late afternoon, the sun would shine in and the MacBook Air would slow to a crawl. In a desperate attempt to cool things off, the Intel processor inside would turn off one of its two processor cores. The cursor would start jumping around on the screen. I ended up having to run some pretty hacky software that adjusted the speed of the processor in order to keep things running at all. And it was slow, but at least it meant I could answer email after 3 p.m. on a summer afternoon. But the thing was fine if you worked in a meat locker. Butchers of 2008, rejoice. Two years later, in the fall of 2010, Apple holds an event on its Cupertino campus called Back to the Mac. Thanks for coming this morning. We've got some fun stuff to uh, share with you this morning. Keep in mind, this is in the midst of iPhone mania, and it's a few months after the launch of the iPad. But after all that, Apple's going to bring it back to the Mac, introducing a new version of Mac OS, some new Mac hardware. Oh, and there was one more thing. That one more thing really comes back to our theme for today, which is back to the Mac. Here's Stephen Hackett. One thing that's really interesting about this generation of MacBook Air is how Apple introduced it as, what if an iPad and a Mac hooked up? Another funny Steve Jobs (laughs) stagecraft moment. You know, we talked about this virtuous circle with Mac OS X helping to create iOS for our devices, that maturing being on the iPod as well, and now being inspired by that, bringing some of that back to Mac OS X. But just like that philosophy has some benefit in our software, it can also have some benefit in our hardware. And so we asked ourselves, what would happen if a MacBook and an iPad hooked up? (laughs) They brought a lot of stuff from the iPad over to the Mac, you know, SSD and really fast wake times and incredible standby time, which is something that Macs didn't really have before this. And now they're pretty well known for that. If you put a Mac to sleep, you can just come back weeks later and it's still there, still sleeping, waiting for you. Now, I am not at liberty to discuss the iPad and Mac's dating history, but that new MacBook Air was the home run that the first model wasn't. The second the insides were ready for that outside, it became the most popular laptop you could possibly imagine. It was iconic. It was incredibly popular because when the insides could fit, they could make it cheaper. It no longer was this incredibly expensive machine, and the price only came down over the years. And it gave customers everything they wanted, especially sort of people who aren't into computers for computers' sake. 
don't want them to be big or intimidating. They want it to fade into the background, kind of the same way that smartphones do, where most it's just a screen to people, and any part that's not the screen is not interesting, right? Laptop is the screen, the keyboard, and the pointing device. And any other part of that is not something that the customer is interested in. So Apple got rid of almost everything that's not the screen, the keyboard, and the pointing device. And they, once they could ship that with insides that provided adequate performance, people loved them because you could still put it in your bag and it would disappear. And it was super light and it was very sturdy because it was a solid piece of aluminum on the bottom and a solid piece of aluminum on the top. And the hinge held up to abuse. And it was very elemental and it was lightweight. It was a killer design that took one extra generation to get over the hump. And once it did, Apple wisely did not mess with success and just iterated on that design by putting better and better insides in it and eventually lowering the price until it went under $1,000. It was also the first time a lot of people were introduced to this new technology. So a lot of people's first SSD-based computer was a MacBook Air. A lot of people's first experience with a, a unibody construction computer, right, where they take this aluminum and they you know, have a machine, they mill it all out, and the, the guts go in there. So it's really strong and really lightweight. A lot of people, this was the first time experiencing that too. And interestingly, those two features gave really good longevity. Because they were metal and really rigid and stiff, you didn't have a lot of the wear and tear you had with plastic MacBooks with lots of screws everywhere holding them together. Because it was SSD, you weren't having hard drives that failed. And so a lot of people got five, six, seven, eight years of use out of these MacBook Airs. I had always been a fan of small laptops. I used the iBook and the 12-inch PowerBook G4, and I loved them. So imagine my surprise when Apple announced the new MacBook Air and then revealed it had a little brother, a model with an 11.6-inch screen. It was even smaller, even lighter, and broadened the new MacBook Air's appeal a little bit more. I bought the 13-inch, and it was my primary computer for a year. And it was the best laptop I ever used for the purposes I used it for, which was for writing, surfing the web, you know, watching stuff. It was just like the perfect laptop. My son, he was running one of my old laptops. And for Christmas that year, I loved it so much that I bought him the 11 inch version. And I was like, if you take care of this, you'll have this laptop for years. And he felt the same way about it. It was almost the perfect design. I would say that that MacBook Air was my favorite Mac of all time. Here's Dan Morin. First one I had was 2011, and it didn't get replaced until just now in 2020. So I've been using the 11-inch MacBook Air for basically all of the 2010s. And to me, that is a testament. Like It's probably the longest I've ever used for Mac, and, and that tells you how good it was. And a big part of that for me was the 11 inch, which, you know, we'll spill some, spill some love out for the 11 inch. If you were somebody who did occasionally powerful things and wanted the smallest, lightest computer possible, MacBook Air is a great computer. The keyboard was great. It was a full-size keyboard. And I think that was the, that was the point where Apple drew the line and said, we're basically never going to make anything that is too small for a full-size keyboard that's a Mac laptop. It never felt like I was compromising with the MacBook Air. Here's John Gruber. I had the 11 inch and I had a, a desktop Mac that was my quote unquote main Mac, but I needed a MacBook. And so I thought, well, make your desktop beefy and make your 
portable portable. So get the 11 inch. And I, I never regretted it. I loved it. Yes, it was a very small screen, but for overall portability and weight, man, that was that was just great. The 11-inch MacBook Air was very clearly constrained by its width. It was exactly as wide as it could be and still have a full-sized keyboard. How small could we get it? No smaller than would take a full-sized keyboard. And then everything else stemmed from there. During this era, there was a lot of discussion about products called netbooks. They were cheap, tiny Windows laptops. And as you might expect, everyone was asking Apple when it would join the party, and Apple suggested it had other plans. One of those plans was not a laptop at all. It was the iPad. Another answer was the 11-inch MacBook Air. The MacBook Air was the answer to netbooks. Remember when netbooks was a big thing? Everyone's like, ah, Apple's got to make a netbook, got to make a tiny computer that's underpowered and doesn't run very well. And Apple, in traditional Apple fashion, was like, no, that's not what we're going to do. Now, during this period, I had tried out a couple of netbooks to see what all the fuss was about. And while I was impressed with the fact that for a few hundred bucks, you could get a PC laptop that basically fit in your pocket, what killed them for me was their keyboards. They were these shrunken down keyboards. Every single key was a little bit too small, and anyone who had learned how to touch type would be completely adrift with the new geometry. I was impressed with the idea of a netbook, but trying to type on one was a nightmare. The 11-inch Air was really Apple's limit. It was Apple saying, we will compromise a lot to get down to as small a size as possible. But the limit of that is the size of a standard keyboard. It was a very wise decision, and it's one that Apple has stood by on every Mac model since. Now, netbooks basically died out. Their closest modern analog is probably the Chromebook, which is a lightweight, low-cost PC that runs Google's Chrome OS rather than Windows. But many PC makers at the time leaned into a new concept, the Ultrabook. What was an Ultrabook, you may ask? It was a term coined by Intel to refer to a brand new class of thin, light PC laptops. In other words, MacBook Airs. Here's Harry McCracken, who for years was my counterpart as the editor of PC World. There was this period after the second generation MacBook Air did so well that the Windows PC industry decided to invent the Ultrabook uh, and try to popularize that. And people didn't really talk about Ultrabooks, but very quickly, the vast majority of, of Windows laptops looked an awful lot like a uh, MacBook Air. If you look in the greater PC market, the whole, uh, I'm doing air quotes, Ultrabook movement, it was people looking at the MacBook Air saying, we want to build that, Right. You, you go into a Best Buy and looking at, you know, kind of mid-range PC notebooks, most of them, if you take your glasses off and step back, look like this machine. And that, that, of course, is no accident. If there was one trend that separated the MacBook Air from other computers, even other Macs, it was the move to high-resolution screens. By the middle of the decade, just about every other Mac had a Retina display, but not the MacBook Air. And when Apple finally did introduce thin and light laptops with Retina displays, they weren't MacBook Airs. They cost a lot more than the MacBook Air. And Apple's customers seem to ignore them and just keep buying the MacBook Air. I think all of that pushback was customers saying, no, this is the product that we want. We don't want a weird MacBook Pro without a touch bar that you say is a MacBook Air replacement. And we don't want the 12-inch MacBook. It's so amazing just from the point of view of somebody who was a potential buyer, not somebody who had to make them. But the idea that they were trying to kill it at some point in the decade just is is mind-boggling. But then you think about what 
had to have been going on behind the scenes in terms of availability of parts and processors that would make it function the way they wanted it to. Well, no, that was the hilarious thing, right? They couldn't kill the damn thing. Like they kept barely upgrading the processor and upgrading the maximum amount of RAM and the hard drive. But, you know, they wouldn't move it to the new architecture. They wanted to kill it. I remember at one point writing something like, there's never going to be another MacBook Air. And I honestly think that Apple didn't want there to be another MacBook Air. There's a reason that Apple had to bring the MacBook Air back after they (laughs) essentially tried to kill it and replace it with the 12-inch MacBook. Because it just struck that perfect balance of power and compactness. They produced the... The MacBook, the MacBook Escape, which was look like a 13-inch MacBook. Like, it's almost as light as the other one. It's like, no, people want the wedge. It, the wedge is slimming. The wedge feels good. The wedge design. And, and, you know, they brought it back. And once they did, everyone just said, yeah, no, that's, that's what we want. We want that computer. Eventually, Apple realized it needed to give the people what they wanted. In 2018, Apple released a new MacBook Air with all the technologies Apple had added to other Macs while it was trying to kill off its most popular product. It had a Retina display, USB-C ports, an Apple-designed T2 coprocessor, Touch ID, the works. And yet, it was clearly a MacBook Air, wedge shape and little rubber feet and all. It rapidly became Apple's best-selling Mac. And in 2020, Apple chose the MacBook Air to be one of the Macs to launch the new Apple-designed M1 processor. The MacBook Air had gone from the back of the line to the front, where it always belonged. If you look at the lineup now, the MacBook Air is still a great machine and a pretty good value. And I think a lot of people looking at that between the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro gravitate towards the Air because they've had a previous one. They had one of these that we're talking about today and they really have fondness for it or they like the wedge design. Something is attractive to them about that. And so people are willing to give up a better machine in some cases A more expensive machine, but a slightly better machine because the Air has that drawing power. And yeah, I think Apple would be foolish to mess with that again. There's a reason why when Apple brought the design and the name back, mostly unchanged. I have two MacBook Airs, two like modern MacBook Airs, an M1-based one and the last Intel-based one in my house. And if you look at them, you see this generation of MacBook Air. Obviously, the insides are way different. And the outsides are technically different if you measure them with a set of calipers, but it's a wedge-shaped solid aluminum computer with a similar size screen that's lightweight and has insides that are adequately powerful, or in the case of the M1, ridiculously powerful. I think it's going to be sticking around for a long time now that we've got the M1 version. Unless we get a dramatic redesign, I think, yeah, there's going to be airs forever. So what will be the definitive mobile Mac of the next decade? The MacBook Air may keep kicking around for a while, but what will replace it in the hearts and minds of users? Apple's approach to laptops has changed very little in the last decade or two. While its competitors in the PC laptop world have experimented with touchscreens, with keyboards that detach or fold away, and even folding screens, Apple has resolutely stuck with the aluminum shell and two perpendicular planes, one for input one for display. I am really struck by the degree to which um, even the new MacBook Air that just came out, which is such an incredible advance on the second generation one in so many ways, has basically preserved the form factor almost completely intact. Kind of as if Apple came up with the perfect form factor for a laptop a decade ago and is stuck with that. I'm not even sure if Apple knows, given that in the Windows market, there's all this experimentation going on And Apple does that with the iPad, 
but they see, really seem to have a strong conviction that they don't want to, to muck up the stuff that's good about MacBooks. And for, for most people, that MacBook that comes so close to perfection is a MacBook Air. I would argue that every ultra lightweight laptop that came after it was a response to the MacBook Air. I think at this point in 2020, that's no longer the case. I think that laptops have gone into a slightly different direction. Things like touchscreens and detachable keyboards have inserted a, a fair amount of separation between Apple's vision of what a laptop should be and the rest of the industries. The Mac does need to continue to evolve. And uh, maybe the fact that it's now running Apple Silicon will allow Apple to do things that would have not been feasible when it was using some other company's processor. In general, Apple doesn't really like to do experiments. So I think we'll know that they feel that they figured out something better than the MacBook Air on the day it's announced, or at best a few months before that when the rumors start to crop up. If Apple is to redefine the laptop for the next decade, we might do well to remember the lesson of the MacBook Air. Sometimes you don't get it right on the first try, and that's okay. Given a couple of years to learn some hard lessons, Apple ended up going from an expensive, low-powered flop to what might be the greatest laptop design of all time. I look forward to seeing what comes next. In the meantime, I'll be right here using my MacBook Air. 20 Max for 2020 was written by me, Jason Snell. Thank you to John Gruber, John Syracusa, Shelley Brisbane, Christina Warren, Stephen Hackett, Harry McCracken, James Thompson, Rick LePage, and Dan Morin. Brian Hamilton provided post-production help. I'll be back next week with number three.